I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to The Book Show. A very happy Christmas from Studio 8 here in RTE where we're going to have music, readings and we'll be helping you decide how to spend those stashed up book tokens you no doubt have. We're going to be talking about the book highlights of 2019 with a room as broad in its members as it is in its book tastes. Joining us later, actor and now book editor Stephen Ray. Hello Stephen. How are you doing? Uh, we've also got author, writer and actor Stephanie Preisner. Hi, Stephanie. Hello, how are you? And fellow book lover and uh, apparently I'm a member of the Cabinet as well, Minister Pascal Dunahoo. Hello, Rick. How are you? Pascal, how are you? Uh, Mike Hanrahan, author, chef and musician. Uh, he's here as well. And we're going to have music from Jerry Fish and readings from Norma Sheehan. Let's give them all a big round of applause to get us started. Here we go. <laughs> First up, it has been, and we say this every year, a phenomenal year in Irish publishing. I'm surrounded by award winners to begin with. Joe Duffy with Children of the Troubles, and Griffin is here from uh, When All Is Said, and of course, Emer McLeisett and Sarah Breen, the authors of Once, Twice, Three Times, and Ashling. And I'm going to come to you first. Hi, Rick. Irish Newcomer of the Year. Congratulations. You also won the Best Irish Book of the Year in the Ricochet Book Club End of yes. Year Poll. What I like about this is that if it hadn't have been for a chance encounter none of this might have happened. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah, um, I, I met a man in a bar um, five or six years ago. Um, an old man in uh, Newport. Actually, if he was listening to it now, he'd possibly be disgusted that I called him an old man. But um, yes, in uh, Newport, um, myself and my husband and my son were on the cycling greenway and we happened in there um, to have a bite to eat and a drink and there was a man standing at a bar with a pint in his hand and over he came to chat to us and he told me two things in the middle of me trying to get the food into my son and all of that kind of stuff going on um, that that just started me on this very very special journey he said I used to work here when I was a boy so in my head as I'm sorting the family out I'm thinking isn't that amazing the circle of life here is this man still in the same place what has happened in his life that he is still here and the second thing he said uh, which really was the genesis of this book, was, do you know, I'm not going to see the morning. And off he went and left me with these amazing words before I could pull him back and say, exactly what did you mean by that? Um, and he may just have been looking for a pint. I, you know, I've been told that. And there's a taxi man in London told me that's exactly what he was looking for. And there have been other people who've come up to me um, and said, I think I know who he is and he's still there <laughs> looking for a pint. Um, and I was in Westport recently and um, I, I was tempted I was tempted to, to make the journey over to Newport. But you, and see but you haven't. You haven't no, gone back. because it was too special a moment, Rick. And I don't want to ruin that because that man handed me a gift that day. And um, I just want to leave it as that very, very special moment in my life. Joe, you apparently know Anne well. Where do you guys know each other from? Just from uh, going around public libraries, basically. And, <laughs> and, uh, no, I, I loved the book. I loved Anne's book. I thought the now I don't know whether you want to give give away the whole story about the coin. Is that a spoiler alert? No, it's, no. And no, I, I couldn't believe when I mentioned it to you a while ago that it is based on a true story. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell the true story? Yeah, so this is about um, uh, Edward VIII. Yeah. So um, Wallace, uh, about, essentially about Wallace Simpson and his love for Wallace Simpson. So before he abdicated, um, they obviously minted coins um, for, for him becoming king. And um, so 
it became the coinage that never was when he abdicated. And it was, the papers were full of it at the time. And I loved this idea. And I thought, and I had realised that some of these sovereigns have, have since gone for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, ah... What if I create a certain amount of sovereigns? But I so I chose six. But I said, ah, but I'm going to want I'm going to say that he wanted a seventh for Wallace Simpson. Um, and it is this coin that enters into the life of 84-year-old Morris Hannigan, farmer in County Meath, and threads its way through the story. There's Joe it's becoming the interviewer trouble. after yeah. 45 yeah. seconds yeah. already. <laughs> I was wondering how long that was going to take. <laughs> Joe, I want to talk to you about your book uh, with Freya Clements. It mm-hmm. won the Irish Published Book of the Year this year, um, Children of the Troubles. Why was it a project that you wanted to undertake after having done Children of the Rising? Because I realised Young Children of the Rising was 50 years too late. I wrote it for the I wrote, started writing in two, 2013, but um, it was 100 years after the rising, and children don't have children. Children don't have a direct line. Children have, don't have direct descendants. So over time, their stories will be lost. Their lives are lost, but their stories, their life stories are lost as well. And I realised we were approaching the 50th anniversary of the first child being killed, and that was Patrick Rooney killed in August 1969 at Divis Flats. And I, it began as a paper desktop project with the internet and the National Library and whatever was around. And um, it's soon I soon realised that... Um, the numbers were absolutely incredible, that each one of them had a story, each one of them had a life story, a love story, um, a childhood, uh, uh, memories. And when we start approaching uh, relatives and friends, we realised, and it happened during the writing of the book, that a number of the parents had already passed on. And um, we were almost racing, myself and Freya were almost racing against the clock to try and get as many families as possible to get down and in a dignified and respectful way. And I think that's why the book is a, is a heavy tome in every sense of the word. It's not a book that's going to fall down the back of the, the couch. Um, and I realised that I thought we should do it before it's too late. It's too late. And what sort of reaction did you get to this book, maybe in comparison to Children of the Rising? Well, the big difference is there are living parents and siblings of the children killed in the troubles um, and the reaction Touchwood has been dignified positive embracing um, a lot of people saying what why is it taking so long and remember we only dealt with one cohort of the victims of the troubles and that was about six percent of the victims were children 75 percent of the victims of the troubles which i now believe is nearer four thousand than the previous figure of three thousand six hundred on the basis of the extra children we found who hadn't been previously publicly uh, recorded 75 percent of the victims of the troubles were a were aged under 40. it was a really uh, savage uh, conflict from every side and the the stories of the people who died what we were trying to do in Children of the Troubles was simply humanise the numbers and say to people as one of the parents said to us the bullet that killed my James um, didn't just travel in distance it travelled in time and it still hasn't stopped travelling through our family and I know that you, like Joe, appreciate social history. I mean, when mm. back in the day when you were a non-fiction buyer in, mm. in Waterstones, the, that was something that was hugely part of your life at the time. Absolutely. Well, I'm a history graduate. 
So um, I met many writers at the time in Waterstones who were, who were fiction writers, but I was, I was the person who was upstairs buying for history, buying for psychology and, and law and all of these different subjects. But it was through those fiction buyers downstairs um, that I fell in love with fiction and so they were handing me people like um, Richard Russo and Tyler Mike McCormack and they were saying get a load of these guys and suddenly my world opened up it wasn't that I hadn't been reading fiction like I was loved Jane Austen and um, actually I have to admit I wasn't a great reader when I was a, when I was a kid I was reading the bunty you know I liked things with pictures um but um so but in so it was you know in my 20s that I really fell in love with the world of imagination I haven't quite gotten to Sarah and Emer yet but when all is said not the only book to dominate the Irish bestseller <laughs> list this year Ashling has had quite the year in fact so did she have the year last year and the year before that as, as well at this stage three books in the top 10 different bestsellers in this country at the moment. You guys are, are the new Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, <laughs> that's a new one. <laughs> We're fonder of the Bridget Jones comparison, but we'll take it. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it does feel mad. And Sarah and I will often say, you know, every week book numbers come out and we'll often send each other pictures going, isn't it mad? Or, you know, they print the, the bestseller lists in the paper and we send it to each other. And I always say it feels like it's happening to someone else. Yeah, we're pinching ourselves. Yeah. What I, I read once at one stage where somebody had said that, you know, the books kind of strike a chord with women who are, you know, in a certain age group and have a certain background. That's a complete nonsense because I've told you I've read the Ashling books and found little bits of me and characters throughout <laughs> it. My mum is in her 70s and she loves the books as well. What is it, do you think about the books, maybe about Ashling herself and everybody around her that makes it a universal experience? Um, I, when we were writing the first book, we probably did think it was just going to appeal to women our age or women in their 20s and 30s, and that was going to be it. And we have definitely found that it is not only women of all ages, but men as well, and people from all over the world come up to us. I guess Sarah and I really wrote from the heart, and we wrote about stuff that we knew a lot about, and we are Irish women of a not-too-young age, so we have some lived experience, so I guess. You know, and we have mothers, and we have friends, and we have cousins and everything so and while our Ashling is from you know rural Ireland and comes to Dublin um, people who have never been outside the pale say they completely relate to Ashling that it's more of a state of mind than anything else like we've created this safe space where people say I would never miss a hotel breakfast I would rather die you'll get a, you'll get a staunch dub come shuffling up and going I think I might be Ashling and we're like it's okay it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> we're all Ashling <laughs> Just in case you've never heard Ashling before, we thought that for this particular programme we were going to take a reading for once, twice, three times, and Ashling. Here, ahead of her 30th birthday, Ashling is navigating her first Christmas with her English boyfriend, James. This is read for us by Norma Sheehan. He glances up at the telly, which is showing BBC News. I mean, this is what happens when the place is empty, and Felipe lets him take control of the remote. If anyone walked in and saw we were cheating on 6-1, I'd be turfed out of BGB. But James is far enough away from home without taking the Downing Street cat and whatnot away from him too. The news has something on about high street sales figures ahead of Christmas. I broke the habit of a lifetime and did most of my shopping online this time around. God forgive me. If another Dublin institution closes down because of my disloyalty, I'll never forgive myself. But there's only so many hours in the day. I'm still not over the loss of A-ware and it's been years. I'll probably get a few more bits in Knock Garden Centre. There's a Le Creuset teapot in there I think Mammy would love. Oh, lovely, another teapot, she said when I gave her the blue one for her last birthday. So at least I know she likes them. 
but I don't know what to get James. I'm at a complete loss. He doesn't seem to want for very much and I mean, he's got plenty of fancy aftershaves and shirts. I'm usually top-notch at choosing presents, but this is a tricky one. James, what do you want for Christmas? I nudge him and he furrows his brow for a second, thinking, and then he smiles. Oh, I have everything I need right beside me. Oh, I swear I'm not able for his romantic line sometimes. I'd be mortified only there's nobody looking at me. Yesterday, he suggested getting a couple's massage sometime. I had to explain to him now that it was far from couple's massage as I was reared. And anyway, I get very awkward in spa-type places. I mean, I never know if I'm supposed to be in the nip or wearing my good knickers or my togs or what like. Ashling, speaking of Christmas, James sits up and turns around to me. I've decided I'm going to fly home. I'll, I'll go on the 23rd. Ah, lovely! Actually, the airport will be magic, I say. Delighted he's offered up this information, at least. I hadn't really considered that he might not go home. I mean, who doesn't go home, like? Imagine James Matthews sitting with us in our pyjamas, eating selection boxes at half nine, and trying to keep that bloody cat away from the sausage meat stuffing. Norma, while I have you there, I have to ask you about next year, about 2020, you're going to be on the road with your comedy show, which if you've never heard the name of before is Heal Your Hole. Yes. <laughs> um, my new comedy show, uh, it's Heal Your Hole and you can check out healyourhole.com for it. So it's basically <laughs> me healing every hole across Ireland, one laugh at a time. And we're going, I'm going to most counties. Yeah. Cork, Wexford, uh, Limerick, Drogheda. Ratoth, Nace. Kildare, I'm in Kildare, girls. <laughs> and, and let's clarify this. It yeah. stems from your, your coccyx. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, I did. I broke my coccyx on, um, I did Celebrity Ireland's Fittest Family and I actually did okay. Like I won 10 grand for Arcos cancer, um, but I nearly died on that day. And um, I did break my coccyx on the first trial. I fell off of a container. Um, but there's nothing you can do with it. Like you can't, you know, you can't even sit in a wheelchair like and you can't put plaster cast on it or whatever. So you just get up off your hole and get on with it. Um, so that's my theory with my show is just to tell everyone, you know, get over your money hole, your lazy hole, your whatever hole and uh, get on with it. And just in case people missed it, what's that website address again? <laughs> Healyourhole.com. Thanks so much. Mike Hanrahan is also here. Uh, Mike, we're going to be talking to you later about your book, but you're going to do a song for us now. What have you got? Uh, I'm going to sing a song called We Had It All. I wrote it uh, just after I left Stockton's Wing. Uh, it's kind of a, a tribute to my time with Stockton's Wing. And it's got a really simple chorus, so everybody here is going to give me a dig out. It is Christmas <laughs> night. We're a bit tired, so I need all the help I can get. And the chorus is like this. We had it all. We had the best of times We had a life That dreams are made of There's a sailor gone to sea Only he knows how it feels As he bids a fond farewell To all his kin as he walks along the shore To his love he throws a rose I'll return again In winter or in spring Here we go Cause we had it all We had the best of times We had the best of times We had a life 
We had a lot that dreams are made of. That dreams are made of. That's gorgeous. At the station, she boards a train. She's all wet with tears and rain. And a father holds a mother's empty hand. Of all the things you'll need to know, she whispers as she goes, What I have I hold forever right here in my heart. Cause we had it all. We had the best of times. We had a life that dreams are made of. On an old country lane where that wilderness still reigns, an old man he takes a flower in his hand. How I've watched you bloom and fade at all that beauty you create. I'll take with me this pleasure as we part. Cause we had it all. We had the best of times. We had a life that dreams are made of. We had it all. We had the best of times. We had a life. The dreams are made of. Mike Hanrahan with We Had It All. Uh, we'll be talking to Mike again later. Pascal Donahue, Stephanie Preisner, Stephen Ray, they're also uh, here with us. Stephen, I'm going to start with you first. Mm. You've taken a slight leap into the publishing world in 2019. Did you know at the beginning of the year that it would see you becoming a, a book editor by the end? Yeah, I hope so, yeah. Um, we decided a couple of years ago to publish a book about um, direct provision because we had done a lecture that Brian McMahon gave, a rather brilliant lecture, and we had some people from Direct Provision reading their poetry, along with Irish poets. We decided, in a way, nothing um, personalises people in Direct Provision more than the poetry they write. Um, it, it gives people an opportunity to see their absolute humanity. You know, they're not just figures, they're, uh, they're humans, and they're wonderful people. I've met many of them, so we decided to put this together. And what has the experience been like bringing it out into the into the real world? There have been events connected with it as well. Well, it's just seeing the people who've been stuck in direct provision um, finally feeling expressed. It's it's been wonderful, you know, and nice poets with children running around under their feet. Uh, they're all having fun. You're going to read a little something for us from uh, correspondence. What's it going to be? Okay, this is a poem called Scars by Nokukanya Dlamini. They might be physical, they might be emotional, but they're scars. Not talking or showing them is my way of moving on. Revisiting those events and emotions is a torture I decided to bury. How many more times do I have to tell the buried scar for you to believe? 
I need to show no proof to show I have emotional scars, but it doesn't mean they're not there. Physical scars heal, sometimes they even leave no mark, but emotional scars are always raw. Anything touches them, they bleed. Their wound does not heal easily. Not seeing them doesn't mean they're not there. You learn to live with them. You learn ways of not touching and wounding them. You learn to move on and live happily with them. After all, they're scars. And I just wanted to do a little section from a poem of Seamus Heaney's called Anything Can Happen from District and Circle. Anything can happen, the tallest towers be overturned, those in high places daunted, those overlooked, regarded. That's actor and now editor Stephen Ray reading from Correspondences. It's published by Stinging Fly and all the proceeds go to Massey, which is the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland. Stephanie Preisner, Stephanie, can I say no? Second book out with Hachette this year. You've also been working on a series for BBC Three. You've read 52 books this year. So can you say no? Um, evidently not. No, um, I have. A, it's it's a battle. Um yeah, so if if you if you're getting the book and you think that it's going to help you, say no, it won't because it didn't help me. There's some tips and tricks in it, like, but uh, I'm just crippled by wanting people to like me. So you know, if I think if someone's like, oh, will you jump off this bridge, and then I'll think that you're a cool person who's nice, I'll be like, yeah, sure. Do you want my shirt as well? You're talking to your brother here, you really are. Um, <laughs> you've read 52 books this year as well, though, so that gives you a fairly broad palette to go. I right, just started, highlights. I started my 52nd, so okay. I wanted to read 52, a book a week, um, and so I'd, I'm on schedule to hit that. What are the highlights? The highlights are certainly um, Once More We Saw Stars by Jason Green absolutely pulverized me now you see i'm all, be be very careful taking book recommendations from me or anyone because like different people want different things from a book like i i turn to a book because i want to be moved i want to cry and i want to laugh well no actually i don't want to laugh i want to cry and i want to finish the book knowing something i didn't know before um and other people want to laugh at a book other people want to lounge on a beach on a book I, I want to be challenged by my books and so Once More We Saw Stars by Jason Green is a non-fiction book about um, a man whose two-year-old daughter dies in a freak accident one day in Brooklyn a, a brick falls off a building and kills her and it's his journey through grief and it is unbelievable and then my other book is um, I can't actually remember what I told the producer oh uh, yes sorry <laughs> Which gives you the ability to say anything you like <laughs> right now. My second book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Laurie Gottlieb. Um, because I'm very voyeuristic when it comes to like other people's problems because it helps me to stop looking at my own. Um, and this is a book about a therapist. She's a very famous therapist, Laurie Gottlieb. And she used to work on Eeyore and Grey's Anatomy and then as a, a script editor and a story editor and then she decided she wanted to work with real humans and real stories so she became a therapist and at the start of the book she's got this really difficult client and then something happens in her own personal life where she needs to get a therapist so the book is a therapist 
her therapist and all of our problems revealed. And it's so juicy. It's like sitting in the corner of someone's therapy sessions. And I love it. <laughs> it's amazing. One of the questions people always ask you when you say things like, well, I'm going to read 52 books this year. Or I'm making an effort to read a lot of books is, OK, so where am I going to find the time to do that? Because something else has to, you know, shift in your world. You've got to do a little less of something else. What was it for you? Well, you see, I don't like watching television. Um, and also I love taking public transport and I just always have my book with me I don't really like people so much like I don't like small talk I find it very difficult to small talk I get kind of sweaty and anxious when people ask me like am I going on any holidays or whatever so if you have a book it's it's actually you just have it in your pocket you know you go to a restaurant for lunch and uh, someone takes your order and then you take out your book and you order a coffee and you take out your book. Anytime other people will be scrolling on their phones, I'd just be reading my book. And people don't interrupt you. They do interrupt you when you're scrolling, scrolling through Instagram, but they don't interrupt you if you're reading a book. There's a certain sort of person, though, who does, because I have friends of mine who do that. And they, they know the moment they open a book, someone's going to come along and go, oh, what are you reading? That's very interesting. What are I you only doing? have six friends and they all know not to interrupt <laughs> me when I'm reading a book. <laughs> Um, Pascal, I'm going to move to you. You read voraciously throughout the course of the year um, as well. Tell me, fiction or nonfiction, where, where does your balance lie? Uh, it would be in the nonfiction area. and uh, But the books that I wanted to talk about here this evening were the kind of fictional books and the books that I really enjoyed and books that will stay with me at the end of the year. Uh, because most of the non-fiction books that I read tend to relate to work and I thought it's the last thing people want to be hearing on Christmas Day <laughs> so we need to be looking for something a little lighter uh, and like Stephanie I always have a book with me uh, and while it rare, rarely acts as a barrier for people coming to talk coming up to talk to me <laughs> I have to find yeah. uh, I have always have at least one book with me and it's one of the great ways in which you can keep in contact with so much else. My highlight of last year was actually a book a political book that Pascal recommended to me because not all political books are just for ministers you know <laughs> what was it it was called on tyranny by timothy snyder and it was incredible it's a very small slim book and probably the most important book that i think was published last year and again at the risk of straying into subjects that we might leave until 2020 it's just from history issues warnings about what can happen in democracies and what to watch out for uh, yeah, because, you know, you have your tie off. So technically that's, that's not part of the discussion. <laughs> Although I have heard you throughout the course of the year talk about um, Echid Tamilkaran's book, uh, How to Lose a Country. Yes, I'm beginning to spot the, what's, uh, the similarities between some of the books I'm talking about publicly. Uh, but that's an amazing book. She's a, uh, a Tur Turkish journalist and campaigner. And she writes about what it is like living in Ankara when she sees things that really matter to her about her democracy under really visible attack and what that teaches her about language and about the use of language and about the role of words in public life. And it's a really, really energetic book. It's written at such pace and I found it an enthralling read. I'd recommend it hugely as well. OK, let's scroll back to fiction. What in fiction this year did you like and took your eye? So I was really kind of uh, interested by what Stephanie said there when she talked about what she looks for in books. And when it comes to me to fiction, there's lots of things that I look for in it. But the most immediate thing that I look for with fiction, uh, because all of the other things that uh, tend to occupy my day, are uh, enjoyment and a sight into other worlds and other people and other souls. And there's a few books that I was so lucky to read during the year. I'll start with an Irish one uh, called Leonard and Hungry Paul. Uh, Wonderful, that's a round of applause for me. Right there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just the most gorgeous book. 
And it is about the two gentlest of souls, uh, said Leonard and said Paul. And one of them meets a woman and falls in love. And up to that point, the most important thing in each other's lives were their friends and family. And it's about the wonderful ripples that come from that event. And I am very fortunate to know the author, uh, who's a civil servant. One of the great things about our Irish civil service historically has been the degree to which it has been a font and a supporter of great literary and great artistic talent. And it's wonderful to see Ronan now uh, taking up that vein in a wonderfully beautifully touching comic mode. And, and he's a fine rock star as well, which he tends not to talk about as well And either. until recently yeah. he was uh, a, uh, uh, worked in the Department of Finance. So I actually oh, okay. think <laughs> he, took, he, can, he knows the intricacies of corporate tax policy. He's a musician <laughs> and he's just published a novel. My God, what else can this man do? What else have you got that you like this year? So two other books on the different end of the spectrum. Uh, the first one would be Middle England by Jonathan Coe. And it's a wonderful book. It's part of a sequence of books he's written about a series of characters growing up and living in the United Kingdom. Started off with a book called The Rothless Club. And the latest book is this one. And it's these characters a little late in life uh, with a certain referendum coming up that I'm not going to mention, but it begins <laughs> with B. And it's about the veins that go on in their personal life uh, that make them think about that in the future of England. And it's really, really funny. So I'd recommend that. And then the other one is a, uh, a book called The Border. And it's written by an American crime novelist called Don Winslow. And it's the last book in a trilogy of crime novels that he wrote that begins with a book called The Power of the Dog. And it's about an American uh, member of the Drug Enforcement Agency called <coughs> Art Kelleher. And it's about his one-man battle against the movement of drugs between Mexico and America. But it's about far more than that. I've only started hearing about this now as well. It's like the last series of Breaking Bad. I'm only just finding out about this. This is something worth digging back to the beginning of the trilogy. Go back to the very start. Start with The Power of the Dog. And that is about the early phases of him engaging in a combat, essentially, with a Mexican drug cartel. But it's a amazing story about the how close Mexico and America are to each other. And about what are the real forces that drive the huge movement of drugs, money and people across the two borders, across the border, I should say. And as a piece of writing that's wonderful to enjoy, but also makes you think about other things that are happening in America. This is the trilogy to go for. OK, entirely different. And one of your book highlights involves sewing. Oh, this is wonderful. This is called The Threads of Life. Um, and it is a history of sewing um, and needlework. And, you know, being in a story, and I just loved the idea of this book. And what it taught me, it's, it's written by a Scottish woman called Claire Hunter. It has shown me that throughout history, that needlework was used to give a voice to those who are marginalised. So particularly women have used it. So, for example, the, the mothers of the disappeared in Argentina would stand outside with, with, with um, works of art that they basically sewed with the pictures of their sons and daughters. Um, and so it gave expression to that. It, it also gave expression, um, I'm thinking in particular, um, men after the First World War, one of the things that they did was they were taught how to sew to try and help them recoup <coughs> from if if one can recoup from the kind of horrors of war it is a wonderful book and you know you don't have to be into that craft it is simply looking 
at marginalised voices throughout history. Joe, you had a, a book that you thought didn't get enough attention this year. It was David Blake Knox's book, Why? Oh yeah, it's a, an incredible piece of work. It's uh, about the, the murder, uh, it's his anniversary in three days' time, of a Northern Ireland industrialist called Thomas Niedemeyer. And he was murdered in 1973. He was kidnapped by the IRA. Um, it, it was in terms of the conflict at the time. But I happened to mention the, the issue one day on Liveline, and we got this series of bizarre calls. But one of the calls said, was find, can you find out what happened? There was two children uh, in the house that night when Thomas was, uh, they knocked on his door, which is the name of a documentary I made on it, and he was kidnapped. The two children were left there. The mother was in the hospital. And we discovered that day on Liveline that within 10 years, the three women, the three surviving members of that family, had all, come, all died by suicide. And I mentioned that. We went on to make a documentary. But what David Blake Knox did was he took that story, the beginning of that story, and he researched. He went to Germany. He f looked back at Niedermeyer's life, looked uh, in much more detail at what happened to daughters and, and the wife. And just in terms of, again, I mentioned it earlier about humanizing the, the conflict and, and more needs to be done on this. But it, it took one story one incident, one tragedy uh, from the Troubles, and it, the, in, in David Blake Knox's book, he actually explains the ripples, what, what happened uh, afterwards, and it was, uh, I thought it was a fantastic work, I really, and I thought it should have got more attention. Okay, I'm going to come back to Joe for, for a reading in a minute, and we do have another song uh, on the way as well. Just before that, Stephanie, you are adapting one of your own plays, been optioned by the BBC. Am I allowed to talk about that? Is that happening? Can you tell us more? Well, you've started now, haven't you? <laughs> Too late now, um, it's out there. My first play was called Our Father. Terrible title. No one came to see it because they thought it was a clerical abuse play. It wasn't. <laughs> um, but so the BBC have optioned it. It's in rhyme. And it's about a girl who meets her father for the first time at her mother's funeral. So it's really funny and chirpy. <laughs> um, no, but in the same vein as Kanko Punko, that's kind of how I, I deal with my own stuff in like humour. And um, I think that using humour... In this, you know, what you look for in a book is different to what you look for in a TV show. And I like to, you know, take down people's guard by making them laugh and then reel them in with the humour and then stick them in the heart with the like, with the sad stuff. Shiv them at the last minute, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So that's what the BBC have bought into. So that's what's happening. OK, Joe, one of your favourite writers is Frank O'Connor. He has a wonderful Christmas story. You're going to read something from it first. But tell us about the story first. The story is called Christmas Morning by Frank O'Connor. I don't recommend it now for children. Because um, it's a pretty dark ending, but it's he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Again, he's out of print. I had to find this copy. I ended up finding it in a second-hand bookstore in Gorey called Zazimus. A wonderful, wonderful shop. And um, Frank O'Connor again, I think, is neglected. A stunning, probably. Well, he's he's always compared uh, with the greatest Russian short story writers. But this is called Christmas Morning by Frank O'Connor. It's a very short extract, and of course, Frank in this series of short stories uh, calls himself, uh, Michael as his name was, Michael O'Donoghue, calls himself Larry Delaney and he was an only child which is the name of another uh, book as well that he wrote. But anyway, it's young Larry Delaney, he um, learns some harsh lessons uh, this particular Christmas after mitching from school and trying to stay up to explain himself to Santa Claus, he awakes to find a meagre bounty. Coming on to dawn, I woke up with a feeling that something dreadful had happened. The whole house was quiet and that little bedroom that looked out on the foot and a half of backyard was pitch dark. 
It was only when I glanced at the window that I saw how all the silver had drained out of the sky. I jumped out of the bed to feel my stocking, well knowing that the worst had happened. Santa had come while I was asleep and gone away with an entirely false impression of me because all he had left me was some sort of book folded up, a pen and a pencil and a tuppenny bag of sweets, not even snakes and ladders. For a while, I was too stunned even to think. A fellow who was able to drive over rooftops, climb down chimneys without getting stuck, God, wouldn't you think he'd know better? Then I began to wonder what that foxy boy Sonny had. I went to his side of the bed and felt his stocking. For all the spelling and sucking up, he hadn't done so much better, because apart from a bag of sweets like mine, all Santa had left him was a pop gun, one that fired a cork on a piece of string which you could get in any huckster shop for sixpence. All the same, the fact remained that it was a gun, and a gun was better than a book any day of the week. The Doherty's had a gang, and the gang fought the Strawberry Lane kids who tried to play football on Arrow Road. The gun would be very useful to me in many ways, while it would be lost on Sonny, who wouldn't be let play with the gang, even if he wanted to. And then I got the inspiration, as it seemed to me, direct from heaven. Suppose I took the gun and gave Sonny the book. Thanks, Joe Duffy. That was part of the Frank O'Connor story, Christmas morning. Mike Hanrahan, you got another song for us. Uh, what are you going to do this time around? Uh, I'll do a song most people would probably know uh, called Beautiful Affair. And I wrote it when I was about 18. I left, when I left school, I went into university in Doolin, the University of Life, and uh, everything just changed overnight. And that's what this song is all, this song was born in Doolin, and it's all about Doolin, and it's taken me all over the world. So, my best pal. When you feel like you're laying low The mountains seem no closer than before And you wonder why You know in your mind it doesn't know that to hide The only way is living to survive It makes you feel alive See all the doors swing open Your life's unfolding before your very eyes Such a strange affair Walking around, come into the sound Forget you're down, feel the air Beautiful affair There comes a time when you look around You see the ocean rise before your eyes Showing no surprise You make your way down to that shore You climb aboard, you give yourself a smile It makes you feel alive See all the doors swing open, your life's unfolding before your very eyes. Such a strange affair. Walking around, coming to the sound, forget you're down, feel the air. Beautiful affair. 
see all the doors swing open Your life's unfolding before your very eyes It's such a strange affair Walking around's coming to the sound Forget you're down, feel the air Beautiful affair Mike Hanrahan, Beautiful Affair. It's also the title of uh, the book, Mike. What's the book about? Uh, the book is a memoir about my life of food and music. Uh, since I was a kid, I was involved with food with my mum, and then uh, right through my career in music, we, we had to feed ourselves. And uh, Stocks and Zwing, when we started, we were kind of poor. We lived in a van, and we, we cooked a lot in the van. And then um, I worked with Ronnie Drew for 10 years, and he was a, a great Spanish cook. And uh, we ate, ate a lot of Spanish food together in different restaurants. And and then when Ronnie was uh, diagnosed with, with cancer, we all knew it was kind of, it wasn't great news. So I decided to jump off the bus and uh, I went to Ballymaloo. And I trained in Ballymaloo. I ended up spending 10 years in kitchens after that. And then I wrote about all that. That's what the book is about. You've just painted the picture of Ronnie Drew with a big plate of paella in front of yeah. him, which I, which I love. He, he cooked I a mean tacos. Paella. I was imagining tacos. What were you imagining, Ronnie Drew? Oh my, I'm now imagining Ronnie Drew with a taco. Yeah. What a beautiful image that is. Yeah, it would have been a bit, a bit of a mess around the beard, yeah, I'd say. exactly. The, 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 uh, back on topic, the, the, the template Sorry. for the book, I like it, is it's, it's one of your favourite books that kind of evokes Christmas memories for you as well. It's Honey from a Weed by Patience Gray. Yeah. Why that book? Why is that so well, special? Well, I, I got the book years ago as a present because I've because I was always into food, I, I tended to get uh, food books, uh, cookery books. And Patience Gray and her husband was a, her husband was a, a stonemason, and they just they jumped off the wagon and started travelling for years around the Mediterranean. And they lived in with the people, and they cooked. And then she told a story, and I always remember the, the, the opening couple of lines in her book was, uh, "There was no electricity, there was no uh, TV, no radio. We had to listen to the landscape." And that's the landscape taught us how to live every day. And I thought it was the most beautiful opening to the book. And I always, and there was no pictures in the book, it was just uh, drawings. And I thought if I ever wrote a book, this would be my template. So when I got to, to write the book and I got the, the publishing deal, I kind of insisted I didn't want any photographs of food or anything. I just wanted to tell my story uh, of my life with the people I've met and their story of their food experiences and mine. And that, that was my template. So Honey from a Weed, I may have, I may be going through my fifth or sixth version of it now. I just love the book. It's a beautiful read. I am going to go back around um, um, everybody in as much as I can as well, just to ask about stories or books that maybe evoke Christmas for you or ones that are entirely connected Before um, you do with that, Christmas. can I ask Mike a question? You, you, you can break in. Sorry. Please do. Yeah, um, Joe did it earlier. You may as well know. You did yeah, no, ahead. just because I'm like peak adulting here, but I, I just want to know um, what I always try to ask chefs. What is one thing that you think people do wrong when they're cooking? Or what's it like your... Do you have a good tip? Uh, well, the greatest tip I can give anybody, from because I used to teach, I, I was a teacher in Ballymaloo, and the greatest tip is, if you've got a recipe, then follow it. You know, <laughs> don't be thinking, well, sure, I'll throw in a pinch of this or a pinch of that. Most of these recipes are kind of tried and tested by... by very excellent chefs. And I used to, I used to test uh, recipes for Dorina's book, so I know what goes on in the background for these cookery books. So I'd say, if you've got a recipe, just go for it. Yeah, but like someone else said that to me once, if you can read, you can cook. I don't can. I can read, but there is something that happens. Well, there's a guy, there's a guy my, a pinch, head chef, like? my head chef is called Mr. Google. 
Yeah. So I go to him. And if you're ever stuck and you can't read, and you've always got a guy on there. Hi, my name is Bob. I'll show you how to do this. No, I don't so. know. BBC Food is the first thing to come up. And every single time it's like, this takes 45 minutes and serves six people. And I like, I'm left with something that barely feeds me and takes two hours. And then, isn't, isn't it always timings that ruins it? For me, I get the timings wrong completely with everything. And they just have a pile of whatever. I bet you, know. you there's people listening in now and they're like opening a ravaged turkey that's yeah. as dry as a desert. Or I, maybe just been reminded that the turkey should have been taken out too. I, 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 could, I could recommend a really good cookbook that I released this year on HarperCollins, my own book, and it has all the instructions there. But for you, you told me there's, you told me there's, but there's no pictures, is there? No. Oh, oh God, here. no pictures. Oh, I need pictures. Yeah. No. Like, pictures I'll, up here in the head. I'll Google for the pictures. <laughs> like, sorry, Rick, uh, you uh, could uh, take no, that no, no, show no, again that there a, now. That was a worthwhile diversion. <laughs> uh, uh, Pascal, maybe I'm going to come to, to you. Tell me about maybe stories or books that, uh, th- that either connect to Christmas or evoke Christmas uh, for you. Well, for me, actually, uh, one of the defining things of Christmas is always getting books on Christmas morning. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I remember the most uh, as a kid growing up at Christmas and as a young reader would be I'd never buy hardbacks or get hardbacks, but I might get the odd one on Christmas morning. And picking up a book and realising this, picking up a present and realising this is both a book and a hardback uh, with a sense of something really magical happening. Uh, and, uh, and that would be one of the, my kind of main book memories from Christmas. For me, it was always the Guinness Book of Records. I haven't felt it since I was seven years old and the Guinness Book of Records turned up every year. And even a now I buy those up, for my son. A wrapped up iPad feels suspiciously like a Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> no, no. It's I the weight of it. No, I've got nothing. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, I was going to ask um, you about children's stories uh, in, in particular. Because you've got traditions and you do them with your kids at this time of the year because they're now just about old enough to do that. Yeah, I have three small kids. The eldest is six and the youngest is just uh, 10 months. Um, And we have a nice tradition every Christmas Eve. I take out a book that I hide away all year. um, So it has this kind of air of mystery about it. And, you know, it's the classic, The Night Before Christmas. But it's this beautiful um, pop-up version that I found in a thrift store in America um, by, I think the artist is Robert Sabuda. but it has these amazing pop-up, like huge pages. And we go through it on Christmas Eve and it's just a really nice tradition. I have it written down in front of me here. I'm hoping that this is true. Joe Duffy, do you still buy Christmas annuals? Yes, I loved them. <laughs> just Absolutely loved yeah. them. The Victor, the Hotspur, um, the, the, the Beano, the Beano, the Dandy. No, that's uh, that's that's. Um, but Joe is in the Orchie. Um, <laughs> no, no. uh, the Beano, the Dandy, uh, the Bunty, the Mandy. I'd buy anything. I just loved them. I loved the smell of them, the feel of them, the colour of them, the Av Tuppers, the Riot of Rovers, the Commandos. Oh, magic. Do they still make them? Yes. Yeah. Excuse him. What? We used to get those. Excuse him. Are they true? Chris Kindle, have you opened it yet, Stephanie? <laughs> well, um, no. You think it's an iPad you're getting? It's not. It's an eight-euro <laughs> annual bunty. from Easton's. I love it. I just love them, and I hope. I just hope. Um, People are still, parents are still giving them to their children. They are, they are. Well, my kids get annual. They are because yeah, I, went in, I, I went into a, a major book retailer, which shall remain nameless, about yeah. four weeks ago, looking for the Beano Christmas album. Yeah. Sold out. Can't yeah. get it. It's not brilliant. Gone already. It's Too not late. brilliant, yeah. Uh, and I was going to ask the, uh, you. The officials from the Department of Finance have been in ahead of you. <laughs> 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 that, I, I, I can confirm that is the case. I have a stash of those in the Department <laughs> of Finance, Rick, and will arrange for a special delivery later on. Fantastic. <laughs> that's that's one for everyone in the There's definitely not. And, um, Tell me about A Christmas Carol, because you, 
uh, are now at that stage where you, you, you've recently read it with, with your son. I mean, yeah. I've, been, I've been to see it, the, the production on in the gate twice <gasps> this year because it is Wonderful. that good. But wh- why is it? And it was just on TV recently yes, as well. What right. is it about A Christmas Carol that it keeps coming up again and again and again as the quintessential Christmas story? Because it's brilliantly written. I mean, Charles Dickens is one of the best writers we've um, ever known. And he writes um, in a way that is, is gripping, is magical, but he has an essential, important message about being kind to others at Christmas. And he captures it in this wonderful, structured story of the three ghosts. And I love every version I've ever seen on TV. Um, I have the most beautiful version of it at home. It's, it's a beautifully illustrated version that I read with my son last year. We took a couple of pages a night um, and we read it to each other. And it is wonderful. And he is an absolute addict to A Christmas Carol now and will watch every version. I have a new version for you um, before he's going to perform for us, uh, reading a little something from A Christmas Carol Cherry Fish. But he, Scrooge, was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late, that was the thing he set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was there, a full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello, growled Scrooge in his accustomed voice, as near as he could feign it. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir, said Bob. I am behind my time. You are, repeated Scrooge. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir, pleaded Bob, away from the tank. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend, said Scrooge. I'm not going to stand for this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, he continued, leaping from his stool and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank again. And therefore, I am about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentarily idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for help and a straight waistcoat. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge, with an earnestness that could not be mistaken, as he clapped him on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have ever given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavour to assist your struggling family and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop. Bob, make the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye. Bob Cratchit. Jerry, tell us before you, you you're going to play something for us to finish this out. But tell me about about Christmas and about you and about what that means to you in terms of, of stories and books and all that. To me, Dickens is is really it. You know, he's because I grew up in South London, so I know a lot about uh, Charles Dickens and the people that he was documenting. And it was one of the poorest areas 
in the world, you know, like a Calcutta. And Dublin has, has had that. So I think Christmas is about poverty. It's about realising that there's people with a lot less than you and, you, and, and realising what you have to share, really. So Dickens, Dickens and Dr. Seuss probably as well. Don't forget the Grinch. <laughs> Before uh, we hear True Friends from Jerry Fish, we're going to have one final reading from Norma Sheehan. It's from the O. Henry story, The Gift of the Magi. It's perfect to finish this out. Uh, before we do that, can I please uh, say thank you to uh, all of our guests today. It's Stephen Ray, Stephanie Preisner, Pascal Donahue, Jerry Fish, Norma Sheehan, Joe Duffy, Anne Griffin, Emma McLeisett and Sarah Breen. <laughs> The programme is available on podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get yours. The book show is produced by Elizabeth O'Neill for Ojo Productions. She gets around the applause as well. We'll be back in 2020 uh, for more book chat news and recommendations. I'm Rick O'Shea from all of us here. Happy Christmas and a new year full of books and reading. And here's Norma Sheehan reading The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Jim put his arms around his Della. For 10 seconds, let us look in another direction. Eight dollars a week or a million dollars a year, how different are they? Someone may give you an answer, but it will be wrong. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. My meaning will be explained soon. So from inside the coat, Jim took something tied in paper. He threw it upon the table. I want you to understand me, Del, he said. Nothing like a haircut could make me love you any less. But if you'll open that, you may know what I felt when I came in. White fingers pulled off the paper, and then a cry of joy, and then a change to tears. For there lay the combs, the combs that Della had seen in a shop window, and loved for a long time, beautiful combs with jewels, perfect for her beautiful hair. She had known they cost too much for her to buy them. She looked at them without the least hope of owning them, and now they were hers. But her hair was gone. But she held them to her heart and at last was able to look up and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then she jumped up and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful gift. She held it out to him in her open hand. The gold seemed to shine softly, as if with her own warm and loving spirit. Isn't it perfect, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at your watch a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how they look together. Jim sat down and smiled. Della, he said, let's put our Christmas gifts away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use now. You see, I sold the watch to get the money to buy the combs. And now I think we should have our dinner. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the newborn Christ child. They were the first to give Christmas gifts. Being wise, their gifts were doubtless wise ones. And here I have told you the story of two children who were not wise. Each sold the most valuable thing he owned in order to buy a gift for the other. But let me speak a last word to the wise of these days. Of all who give gifts... These two were the most wise. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the most wise. Everywhere they are, the wise ones. They are the Magi.
Christmas, everybody. 